hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. Welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivman, and it is fabulous to be with you here. We are just a few days short of Pesach, one week away. I'm sure everyone's getting ready. We certainly are getting ready. Please, God, we'll all celebrate Pesach with the Korban Pesach in Jerusalem with the speedy coming of Mashiach. And until then, we are organizing the Pesach retreat in the Velmore Hotel, which is very close by, very convenient, and only a few rooms remaining. So we're really getting that ready, putting it together. And Pesach is not just about... The preparations. The preparations are very important. Whether you are coming to the hotel with us, and by the way, those who waited to the last minute, there are some good deals now just so we fill up those rooms. But if you're doing it at home with your family, wherever you're doing it, the preparations are the external. It's the, it's getting ready for the Seder. But the main thing, of course, is the celebration itself. And last week we were talking about a very important thing because many people going out there shopping, looking for the right matzah and for the right wine. And you go into the supermarket and you see shelves stocked with boxes and boxes of different matzahs. You got the square matzahs, very uniform in size and not that costly. And last week we talked about why it is that the round shmura matzahs are indeed so expensive. Why they you know, think about it. It's about 25, 30 rand a box of machine-made matzah, whereas the round matzahs, depends where you shop, between 400 and 800 rand a box, a kilo. One kilo of matzah could cost you anywhere between four and 800 bucks. And we were wondering why. And we discussed a little bit last week about the reasons for the expense. And maybe just to recap a little bit, there's various degrees of matzah. And just to take you into the background, if you go into the shop, one thing for certain is even if it's matzah that you're buying, you got to make sure that it's kosher for Pesach because there are matzahs that are not made for Pesach. And we'll talk just now about why specifically it has to be made with the intention for Pesach. But there certainly are matzahs that are not kosher for Pesach and you got to be careful about that. The next degree of matzah, which is kosher for Pesach, but is not shimura. And generally, you're only going to find this in the square machine matzah type. And it's not ideal. There are deficiencies of machine matzah that we're going to discuss, but it's not just about the machine element. It is the non-shimura, and possibly those are the cheapest matzahs out there. And I'm sure the taste won't be anything different. So you're probably wondering, then why must I pay more for something that is shimura, whether it is machine-made or handmade? And that takes us to the next level, which is, actually quite a bit better, and that's it's Shmura machine matzah. And when I was at Kosher World the other day, Joel told me those are running off the shelves. So if you want machine Shmura matzah, you better go get them quickly. And that, of course, has the element of Shmura, of being guarded and protected. And we'll discuss a little bit more about that in a moment. But that is many people will use those for the Seder. And what's better about that for the Seder is it has the Shmura element. In fact, some people believe that the machine shmura matzah are even of a higher standard because being manufactured by a machine, it has no potential for human error involved. And in fact, one of the debates discussed about the difference between machine made and shmura matzah is that the shmura is handmade and it of course can be, one can feel if there's any grains of wheat 
or flour that are un that are unneeded uh, properly within the dough, and you don't have that benefit necessarily in the machine. But of course, there's the other side that the machine could mix it much better than the hand could. So of course, the argument could go both ways. But even if you're getting the round handmade shmora matzah, believe it or not, there are differences as well, because some handmade shmora matzah is only shmura. It's only guarded and and watched and protected from the time of grinding. Now, although it's a handmade shmura matzah, nevertheless, there are different different degrees of shmura. And here you consider shmura one degrees from the time of grinding, but the ideal would be, it's called mishas katsira. That it means from the time of harvest. And those are the matzahs that are preferred, that are most ideal, because that's absolute shmura and it's absolutely handmade. And this is what we should be ideally using for our seder. Besides for the difference between the machine and the hand that we talked about last week and that I'll touch upon in quick review today, but there's a critical point because these matzahs are the ones that have the most benefit within it. And there are problematic deficiencies within the other types of matzahs. And we want to talk about those, about the importance of those a little bit today and understand the difference. Because for millennia, matzah has been produced by hand, people making them in their homes. From the time we left Egypt, every year we would we would symbolize, we would recall our exodus with baking matzahs. And in fact, some people would bake them at home. Uh, everyone baked them at home. But this was something that every family did. But even during the Chag, except for Shabbos, when you're allowed to bake, the matzahs would be baked. That stopped much later on, much later on, maybe in Talmudic times, it was stopped to be baking them on Yom Tov with the Chashash, the concern that perhaps there was, it would become leaven, it would become chametz along the way. And then we... Also, if you look at the old matzahs, which you could perhaps find in Sephardic circles today, are more like a lafa, like a pita, much softer and thicker. It is only more recent, and I'm talking about recent, it's perhaps the past millennia plus, that we have the new, uh, what we call the thin dome matzah, and it's round shape, and a lot of the rules related to them were implemented in later years, just so we understand a little bit of the background. Now, of course, as the centuries progressed, and then you had commercial matzah bakeries opening. It wasn't necessary any longer for families to do this individually in their home as, as people have been doing for centuries. So the matzah baking in the bakeries, of course, continued to be done by hand until the time of the Industrial Revolution, when all of a sudden, that's when machine matzahs were introduced. Now, last week we talked about much of the opposition Related, and many of the great rabbis, including Rabbi Shlomo Kluger of Galicia, and Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Alter of Gur, and the Tzanzeruv, and uh, Rabbi Avram Bernstein of Sochachov, and, and the Lubavitcher rabbis, and many other Hasidic rabbis, what their opposition was, many of them had strong oppositions to the mach- introduction of machine matzahs. And of course, equally strong was the support of the machine matzah bakery, which was many other great leading rabbis, including the brother-in-law of, Shlom, of Rav Shlomo Kluger, Rabbi Shaul Nathanson, Yosef Shaul Nathanson. So you had support in both ways. And very important to recognize, especially regarding conflict resolution, that is, even if we have differences of opinion, the purpose of this argument, of this conflict, was not to prove who's stronger or greater, 
but rather it was l'shem shemayim. It was for the sake, for the purpose of fulfilling the mitzvah in the best way possible. And therefore, this is the kind of machlokas, the type of conflict that is sofa l'shem whose end goal, whose purpose is achieved because the idea is, this isn't an argument of ego, of prowess, but rather one which is to try to fulfill the halacha in the best way possible. And even if there's no final conclusion, nevertheless, this is the type of argument that is appropriate because this isn't a futile argument. This is an argument amongst rabbis, amongst Jewish leaders, on what is the best way we could serve Almighty God. Of course, there are many ways to do so, but it's worthwhile looking at what's the best way to do so. And we'll talk more about that just now. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. And we've been talking about the matzahs, and I'm sure you can pick up some matzahs there too. We were talking about the debate, if to get the machine or the handmade. And of course, there were reasons for the opposition, and there was a reason for the support. Some of the reasons we discussed last week was, well, the machine matzahs have a little bit of a problem, and that is, it's hard to clear out any of the dough that perhaps gets stuck in the grooves or the gears of the machines. And if dough remnants would stick to the machine, then after 18 minutes, of course, they would become chametz. And what happens to the following batches of matzah? They would all be chametz. So it's really a problem. And the rabbis came up with a solution for that, which was really quite a neat solution. And this is the way rabbinic arguments and conflict work, is we have a challenge. Well, let's find a solution and they resolved this by deciding that the machines the inside of the machines would be cleaned out between each and every batch of production and then they decided also to differentiate between the round shaped and the square not this wasn't just to distinguish between machine and hand that perhaps was one of the side benefits but the main reason was that if pieces from the rounding off of the matzahs, from rounding the dough, would be remaining inside the machinery, inside the gears, inside the various parts of the machine, of the machines and the grooves, then what happens is it would become chametz if it sticks there for too long. So by making them square and uniform to begin with, it was one of the ways of going about fixing the challenge. There were a couple other challenges that we talked about. There was a concern that the machine, of course, gets hot and that would heat up the dough to a point where it may cause it to ferment prematurely. Warm dough, we know, ferments. So this was one of the concerns. And they argued about this because if it causes fermentation, then it was going to rise and become chametz. And there were answers about making sure the machine it's temperature controlled and cleaning it out and preventing these things from happening. Another concern we discussed was the concern for the poor. This is something that we as the Jewish community have always had. We have job creations in the community. And if the machines would replace the widows and orphans who were involved in the matzah bakeries and these indigent people who were dependent on the income, the rabbis felt you can't just take away those jobs. Of course, the response to that was, well, we're creating other types of jobs, but making the matzah production a lot more efficient. There were other concerns, for example not feeling the dough properly and that we discussed a moment ago that if you're going to knead it by hand, you could feel the dough, you could make sure that every part of it is properly kneaded and mixed, whereas a machine doesn't have those feelings. An answer to that would be is let the machine mix it even more and it could probably do a much better job than the human hand could. And there were other concerns, for example, the winds of change at the time where there was a lot of modernization, emancipation in Western Europe, the development of Western culture, for example, after Napoleon offered the Jews that freedom of religion, many took it as freedom from religion. And that 
saw the transformation of the Jewish world where many people in those times had the unfortunate uh, process, and especially in Germany and France and England and Western Europe, where people were leaving the fold of traditional Judaism, many even becoming more German than the Germans, becoming more Gentile than the Gentiles. And it's one of the problems that many of us face, and many of the rabbis at that stage, especially the Hasidic leaders and teachers, really feared that any kind of introduction of modernity into the Jewish community would somehow be a, a perf- uh, per- uh, somehow modernizing and watering down and compromising the the Judaism of millennia. And therefore, they were taking these precautionary measures to prevent that modernization. And they thought that bringing a machine to the production of matzah, something that was done by hand for centuries, would obviously have a detrimental effect. And we could look at that in a separate discussion about the modernization. You know, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, did not support Napoleon, even though Napoleon would have offered Jewish people at the time who were suffering immensely from pogroms and anti-Semitism, persecution, oppression in Eastern Europe. But he supported the Tsar. And his reason, in brief, is because he said, better we should suffer physically, but prosper spiritually. And no doubt if one looks at the difference between Eastern and Western European Jews, although the Western European Jewry experienced that emancipation, unfortunately it came at a high price for their Jewish values, whereas those from Eastern Europe remained a lot more committed to their traditions until that wave of modernization spread to Eastern Europe closer to a century later. And it certainly took Europe by storm, where many, many Jews really embraced that modernity. And perhaps it's because of centuries and centuries of a lack of it. And I think by today's day and age, here in Joburg, we could be proud that we found a nice balance between being a modern Jew and at the same time proudly Jewish. And it really shouldn't be a conflict. But of course, when it was first introduced, many did see it as a conflict. There was one more concern that we mentioned, and that was one of the most debated issues. And it's still quite relevant today, and has to do with the idea of lishma. Because here is where we find a real, powerful, relevant idea, which, what is the idea of lishma? When the Torah tells us, which means you should watch over the matzah, we're not just talking about protecting it, guarding it from thieves, or from burglars, or to make sure that it's kosher. Yes, of course, every kind of kosher food production manufacturer needs to have somebody supervising, watching, guarding, protecting it. But that's relevant to all kosher food production, not specifically to matzah. So our sages tell us the relevance to matzah is a lot stronger. And here we're talking about guarding the matzah, not just from chametz, but rather the Talmud explains that when the verse tells us to guard the matzah, we have to guard it to ensure not only preventing it from becoming chametz, but that it is made specifically for the mitzvah of eating matzah on Pesach, which is a mitzvah that every Jew observes next Friday when Pesach begins. And therefore, if the if a person is needing unleavened dough, just flour and water, but for any other purpose, not for Pesach, then it will not be considered Pesach dick. It will not be kosher for Pesach. And that's why, as I mentioned before, it's very possible you can find matzah that has not a shred or ounce of chametz in it, but it may not be valid, qualified kosher for the Pesach observance because it has to be made l'shem matzah's mitzvah. If you go into any matzah bakery, any place where matzahs are being made in the world, 
you'll hear the people, the people who are rolling those pins and making the matzah. They constantly every. 18 minutes they announce, or even multiple times within the 18 minute cycle, l'shei matzah's mitzvah, for the sake, for the purpose of the mitzvah of making matzah. And here we see this very powerful idea that the l'shma, the intention, is such an integral component here. And so some sages argued that a machine cannot have that consciousness, it cannot have that ability to be aware that it is l'shma, with the intention of kneading the dough for the sake of the mitzvah. And for that matter, for any other purpose. Of course, one could argue back that a rolling pin doesn't either have that proper intention. And so just like the person who is rolling the pin has the intention, the kavana, the, that it's the shema, the shem matzah mitzvah for the purpose of baking matzahs from the mitzvah of Pesach. The same thing you could say that the person who's activating, who's turning the machine on, why is that any different? And of course, there were arguments back and forth because you could say that the electricity is enabled through manpower, but it's only in that moment, in the first moment of activity, but then the electric current continues on its own flow, whereas a person can have a constant intention that you're baking the matzah for the purpose of this mitzvah. And this is an argument that is never ending. Of course, we discussed a lot about it last week, and someone asked me if I could please continue the story that I was mentioning last week about Mr. Manischewitz. And I think that is also a good story. So let me share it with you because something that happened in, in the turn of the 19th century, or rather even the early 20th century, but the late 19th century was with the, the arrival of many great, of many people, many Jews leaving the shackles of persecution in Europe behind there was a man named Rabbi Dovber Manashevitz. Actually, it was a borrowed name because his real surname was Abramson, but he adopted the name Manashevitz from the passport of someone who he used, someone who was deceased, actually, to get to the United States. And when he arrived there, he was a shochet in the city of Cincinnati in Ohio. And unfortunately, he discovered that although there were many Jews there, not all were observant. Many people were focused on earning a dime. And instead, people just didn't have the ability to make matzah. So he started a little matzah factory in his basement just for himself and his family. And then he grew to some friends. And by the time 1888 came around, he had this matzah bakery going. In fact, it has grown so exponentially that by the time 1900 arrived, he had the biggest oven in the world. This guy had things going on. His customer base was mostly not even Jewish. He had many Gentiles who wanted the matzah. It was really good for uh, a temperature-controlled um, travel. It was very good that it was un- an unperishable product, and people were traveling towards the gold rush in California, going west. Many of them thought it would it was a great food to take with. So this became a staple of American food. And in fact, by 1900, they say, besides for having a fully automated machine, a bakery, with uh, the biggest oven in the world at the time, he also had these matzahs. They were producing 75,000 pounds of matzah a day. And it's quite astonishing, quite amazing, because they say that in 1920, they were already producing one and a quarter million matzahs daily. It's It's... Unbelievable. And of course, Rabbi Manashevitz 
got became quite wealthy off this matzah. He thought it was doing it just for his fellow Jews for Pesach. And all of a sudden, he transformed the, the matzah from a product uh, that was historically probably only exclusively for Pesach usage by Jews. All of a sudden, he's got a whole market of people who are buying it left and right. Well, Manashevitz, of course, being a rabbi, was looking after his own community. And he brought the cost of matzah down immensely. Just think about the cost of matzah. Like I said earlier, about 30 rand or less for a box of machine matzah versus the expensive version of the handmade. Now, of course, you can't compare a Ford with a Rolls Royce. A Rolls Royce is handmade and it has a price tag for that because that is what you pay for handmade labor. It's made with a whole different amount of care and concern. But let's talk about the difference. Why is it that the matzahs that are handmade, you know, like the Bentley, is it so much more? Are these arguments as fascinating as this is? And thanks for the comments coming through. Is this something that is so important? Why don't we just save the money? And I think this, like I said before, is one of those arguments for the sake of heaven. And this, of course, enriches our tradition. As the Talmud says, Kinat so from Tarbachachma, that it is this competition among scholars and the debates, their conflict, that is actually increases scholarship. The great sage, Rabbi Yochanan, was not comforted after he passed away, after, sorry, after he passed, after his brother-in-law, Rish Lakish, passed away when they sent him various sages to try to offer him comfort and solace because they would just concur and agree with all his opinions. Whereas he says, I want you to challenge me. It's these challenges, these arguments and debates of the sages that create this most intellectually stimulating, vibrant dynamic that the Jewish people have, because that's what allows us to survive and to thrive, to debate matters, to challenge ourselves and to ask ourselves, is this correct? Is this the way it should be? This is what kept our faith, our heritage, our culture, our even the nostalgia. Is this the way it's been done for centuries? It's been done differently. Yes, we can embrace, we could welcome new, innovative, modern technology. And that was what the debate was about. But I think it's this what makes up a very dynamic element of Yiddishkeit. And this is what kept our great-grandparents observing Torah mitzvahs because they always asked, is this something is this a matter that I should be considering? Is this something I'm allowed to do? Whether one was defending the position, allowing the matzahs, or not allowing the machine, the point is this was an argument that really had a lot of depth to it. And the truth is, the next time you pass one of the machine's matzahs, you'll recognize that there was a lot more to the debate than just what meets the eye. And I think with that in mind, it's important to recognize why there were so many Hasidic Rebbes who opposed it, who weren't happy with the machine matzah, especially not for the Seder. And first and foremost, it's the Shmura level of the matzah that it has that element of observance and halachic implications and the meticulousness with which that matzah is produced that makes that matzah worthwhile that one should want to use the matzah because this is a matzah, the bread of faith that has been really observed and, and uh, preserved by our, by those who fought for making sure that the matzah 
in its original form would continue. That's what this argument is about. So regardless of which side of the argument you take, you recognize that this really is a purpose for the purpose of Shemayim, for the purpose of how do we worship God in the best way. But the practical difference is, firstly, with a hand matzah, each matzah is unique. It's distinct. It, 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 the shape, the texture, the taste, the consistency even. Some are thicker, some are thinner, some are more burnt, some are crispier, some are crunchier. Some have the, the, the burn, others don't. It's up to you. What do you like? What do you prefer? I personally like those burnt matzahs. It gives a little bit. Other people say, what am I paying for? Some burnt, some burnt uh, dough. It, it's what you like. But the point is, no two matzahs are ever the same. Each one is needed and shaped in its own unique way. Like the indispens- indispensability of each one of us and God's in God's eyes, each one of us is unique. And then you look at the machine matzah, where every matzah looks exactly the same, tastes exactly the same. So maybe that's one thing about it. Another thing is, maybe you look at the eternity of it. You look at the element of the round showing the unity. That despite our arguments, despite our differences of opinion, we come together and around matzah, which has no beginning or end, which perhaps gives us that wheel of fortune element that it's, yes, it's the bread of poverty that our ancestors ate when they left Egypt. We have to implement some of the powerful messages and lessons that I would like to share with you when we come back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 IFM. And welcome back. We've been talking about the difference between your handmade and shmura matzah. And of course, there is a very powerful, I think very important message here that is worthwhile. Okay, one could say perhaps it's bederech efsher, but I think I still think it's something that makes it very relevant in a personal way. And of course, everything we learn has to have its personal relevance in our own lives. And therefore, I want to suggest another meaningful explanation for the fact that a handmade matzahs is much preferred than the machine made version. And the practical difference between hand and machine matzahs, of course we know, is the labor involved. You know, the flour and the water is the same ingredients. But imagine when it's mixed by hand. The dough needed, the roll, you know, it's rolled out swiftly by hand, the perforations made by hand, and then it's placed in the oven, in the oven by hand. What happens to the machine matzahs? Gone is the sweat, the labor. It's a mechanical process. So if you think about the matzah, it's defined by the Torah. It's, it's the bread of faith. It's the bread that the Jews ate on their night when they were born as an independent people, when we were leaving Egypt in such a hurry, bichipazon. And in fact, the Torah tells us, the Torah calls the festival Chag HaMatzos. What do we call the festival? Pesach. What's the difference? Pesach is our recognition and acknowledging how God passed over the Jewish homes in the plague of the slaying of the firstborn. It's our acknowledging and appreciating that. So we call it Passover, Pesach. God calls it Chag HaMatzot, the festival of matzahs because of our faith when we left Egypt in that hurry. And so when we became an independent people, when we became God's ambassadors to the world, it's the food we consumed as we left our homes and followed God in the desert. Now, one of the mystical dimensions of that is when we can't let go of that chain, that tradition of making that matzah by hand, of all the components of the handmade matzah, is that faith that we had. 
And so it's not about our Judaism by habit, mechanical Judaism. We can't be robotic. We can't just do things by rote. We can't just come to shul and socialize and go to the bracha. That's not Judaism. That's uh, having a good time. It's coming to the club. Our faith cannot be mechanical. It has to be vibrant, alive, active. And so, of course, machines certainly have their place. And we're thankful for that industrial revolution. But there are some things that even brilliant machines can't replace. You think about the love, the faith, the pulse of the human soul. If we want to maintain a living Judaism, then it needs that chiyas. If you want to raise children who are going to hold on to a living Judaism, then we cannot become robotic, machine-like. It can't be artificial, shallow, skin-deep. We need the passion, the warmth, the depth. So the point is, you're making a bracha, you got to focus on it. you got to have the kavana. When we do a mitzvah, we got to do it with joy, with celebration. When we pray, we got to pour out our heart to God. When we study Torah, we got to do it with fire, with energy, with passion, with excitement. And when we help somebody else out, we got to do it with a smile. When we give charity, we give it with a sense of gratitude for the opportunity to share with another. That is a Yiddishkeit that's going to last. Just like the crunchy matzah we've been eating for 3,330 years, that is Judaism that's alive. The Baal Shem Tov once remarked that a child really cannot, can only come into this world through warmth and passion. And that certainly is necessary in any couple's relationship. In order to create life, the Baal Shem Tov said, you need to have passion. Okay, I know that uh, in today's day and age, maybe had the Baal Shem Tov known about artificial insemination, maybe he would see it a little differently. But if we want to create a living Judaism, if we want to create children who will hold on to a living Judaism, then we cannot afford that artificial insemination. We cannot be content with robotic, machine-like Judaism. We cannot be artificial, shallow. We need that passion, the warmth, the excitement of Yiddishkeit, as very famous American football coach told his, his, uh, his players, if you won't be fired with enthusiasm, then I will fire you with enthusiasm. Indeed, we need to be fired up with passion, with excitement, with enthusiasm. That is our Yiddishkeit. That is what's necessary. And so I think when you are going to be considering your matzah, regardless which one you go for, remember, we need that passion, that excitement to have a living Judaism one that we are excited about, one that we're passionate about. That is the Judaism we need to have. In our little bit of time remaining, I'd like to share with you a few ideas because as the Seder is coming, for many people, the Seder sometimes is a little bit, um, maybe a little boring. Maybe it's a nice family get-together, which is great, but it should be much more than just uh, sitting around the table. It's It's got to be a meaningful Gathering, a time, like I say, the Seder is more of an evening of rituals with some food than a dinner with some rituals. So make sure your Seder is more exciting and dynamic and think of how you can make it relevant to your life. Because as we discussed many a time, Pesach 
commemorates our exodus from Egypt, which happened quite a long time ago, 3,330 years next week, from the year 2448 from creation and now in the year 5778, 3,330 years later. But we got to see that it, behold our Vador in every generation, Chayav Adam Lirosas Atzma, a person has to see himself, that you yourself leave Egypt. What is Egypt? And you probably heard this from every rabbi, that Egypt is related, the Hebrew word Mitzrayim, is related to our inhibitions, to our restrictions. And truth be told, we all know what we struggle with, our various inner and outer inhibitions that perhaps stifle our growth, prevent us from maximizing our potential. Whether we're paralyzed by fear, by shame, whatever it is that's preventing us from growing, resentment, codependency, habits and addictions, whether some people are lacking the ability to love, to dream, to cry, to let go of their defenses, whatever it might be, it is a form of Egypt. As Dale Carnegie said, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Hasidic teachings tells us that Egypt isn't just a country in the Middle East. It's a state of mind. And so we have to know how to break through, how to emancipate ourselves, to liberate ourselves from whatever personal Egypt. And so when the Seder comes around next week, we got to really ask ourselves, can we truly free ourselves from Egypt? So one suggestion and recommendation for myself, for you, for anyone you know, is that when you sit down at the Seder, and maybe now already a week before, think of a particular thing in your life. What's holding you back from doing, from becoming, from achieving? How could you overcome that obstacle? And then make the resolution to do the daring thing that's going to help you overcome and break through from that personal Egypt. It might be something simple. Maybe you got to just pick up that phone call, the phone call that frightens you, confront the person, maybe changing a bad habit, jumping into a project, taking a risk, whatever it might be. But boy, when next week comes around, Pesach is not just going to be celebrating some ancient story of our ancestors, but it's going to be something very personal and real because you're going to feel, ah, I am personally liberated. I I emancipated myself. I freed myself this Pesach from something personally holding me back. And I think that is something we should all strive toward as Pesach comes around. Because as we all know, that that's what Pesach is about. And in fact, when we sit down at the Seder and we perhaps read how we invite others to join us, Kol dichving everyone wants you come in and eat. What we're saying is we invite others into our Seder because when we were in Egypt and we felt the pain caused by that oppression, that abuse, the slavery, we know that we're not going to do that to others. And we're going to help others out there who are going through any form of discrimination. We're going to try to help others out there in the world to make sure that it's not perpetuated further. Because we have been hurt, we're going to make sure others aren't hurt. And just put that into a personal, into a very personal way. Because just like we don't like slavery, we're just like we want freedom, let's try to see ways to help another achieve that freedom. So if we break through our own shackles, whatever's holding us back, if we may have experienced any pain in our life, and may have we, we've been bitter about it. But the Jewish approach is, 
I could either say that I had this pain and so I want to see others have the pain too. Or we could say the opposite. I had this pain. I know what it feels like. I'm going to do whatever it takes that no one else has that pain and suffering. And that is what Pesach celebration is very much about. And that's why we ask questions. We sit at the Seder table and the Talmud tells us that a child has to ask his parents. We all turn to our Father in Heaven. Even if there's nobody sitting at the Seder table, we all turn to our Father in Heaven. We say, We ask questions. Even if there's no one else present. Why is that so important? Because slaves don't get to ask questions. Slaves are told, this is what you do and don't ask questions. But we're not slaves. We are free men, women, and children. And so we express that freedom, which is not only a physical freedom, but it's a freedom that we are freeing ourselves from those shackles. And so ask yourself questions. In unhealthy and dysfunctional experiences, there's, there's the silence. Don't ask questions. But if this is a Pesach about personal freedom, then we can ask questions. Judaism encourages you to ask questions. And so when Pesach is coming around now, ask those questions. There's the four questions ready made for you. But equally important is to find and to ask the questions, whether it's to your rabbi, to your parents. Find the questions. The root of all knowledge is the curiosity that you might have. And so... No shame, no gain. I remember my days in school as a kid. If we were prevented from asking a question, then we just didn't know. But truth be told, we know that nothing is more freeing than being able to challenge the status quo and to get a satisfactory answer. And so if we're embarrassed to ask the question, now's the good time not to be embarrassed, to perhaps turn into the child within us And ask those questions. Just ask, ask. If you don't get a good enough answer, ask someone else. But at least ask the questions. Tell the story. Judaism is very much about telling the story. One of the things I recall my childhood said at table, my parents said, mitzvah l'saper. The Torah tells us that on Pesach night, it's a mitzvah to tell the story. And we Jews love telling stories. But not always is it a mitzvah to tell the story. In this case, share the gansamaisa. Tell the story. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your family. Tell your own story. The other day, Kathy was talking here on the morning and the breakfast show on the morning mayhem about people who know how to make up stories. You don't even have to make it up. Here is the story of our ancestors. But it's not just the story of our ancestors, like we said. It's our personal story. We could tell the story. How did I free myself this Pesach from whatever challenges and struggles I have? And this is the story of the Jewish people. Right when we left Egypt, Moshe says, Tell the story to your children. Maybe you didn't experience the story, but you could tell the story of others. And that story, we tell it over and over and over again. That's why we don't forget we tell the story so history shouldn't repeat itself. Whether it's the story of our parents' struggle to come to a free world, coming from the old country. My own father had that story. Thank God I had a much easier life. But I could tell the story of my parents. And we could all tell the story of our great-grandparents, of their exodus from Egypt, of their liberation. And perhaps we could tell ourselves the story 
of our personal emancipation from whatever struggles, from whatever addictions, from whatever pain and suffering we may have had in our life. And I think it's important that we all share the story. And don't wait for Pesach. We're already in the mode. This Shabbos is Shabbos Hagadol, the great Shabbos. The Shabbos when all rabbis give a great sermon at the shul. It's your chance to do it at home. Perhaps sitting at the Shabbos table tomorrow. Tell stories. Tell more stories. Have a Shabbos Hagadol experience at home. Share the story. Share your family's story. Share the Pesach story. That's the story of our people telling stories. Asking questions. You know, they say, it's a question on the story. Well, the only way you grow to know is with asking and challenging and getting those answers. And if you don't have the answer, look further. That is the Jewish story. So my dear friends, it's been great sharing with you these ideas today. I hope we somehow were able to share with you some ideas. Perhaps you could tell them over at your Seder table. In fact, I implore you, if you don't share over the ideas we discussed today, then they go in one ear out the other. So perhaps share it with someone and then you'll remember it even better for yourself. And here's something for you to remember. The Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood has following special valid today only. They got the Sultan Hot Tray, perfect for Pesach with temperature control for $4.99. They got AIM 500 watt food processor for $3.59. Pinewood Double Spiral Hot Plate for $129. They got a Kenwood Stambol mixer, $449. Pineware cordless kettle black for $99. Bucks. You got the counterpoint 200 watt stick blender for 99 Rand. And only today you could find these specials at the Pick and Pay Piper Norwood. My dear friends, I wish you a fabulous weekend. A meaningful, purposeful, great Shabbos filled with joy and celebration. Share the story. We start reading the Haggadah and Jewish tradition already this Shabbos. Tell the story. Start preparing how you're going to make yourself have the most meaningful and exciting Seder. And if you stay tuned to the next show, Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Shishler, no doubt I'll share with you some great innovative ways that you can make your Seder the most meaningful, exciting Seder you've had. So stay tuned next, right after the news. With Zonati.